Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome Jenny Orchard to Books, Books, Books to talk about the wonderful anthology she has edited, The Gifts of Reading, Essays on the Joys of Reading, Giving and Receiving Books. It was published in Australia by Hachette in 2020 and features 23 essays by some of the world's great writers. All profits from the sale of the book go to Room to Read, a global not-for-profit which supports literacy and girls' education in Asia and Africa, and we're going to be talking a little bit about Room to Read. Jenny, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thanks, Nicole. I'm just thrilled to be here. I just would like to give Jenny a brief introduction. She's been involved with the world of writers, books and publishing for 40 years, initially in London, then later in Australia and Asia. Since 2002, she's been involved in the not-for-profit for sector with a particular focus on global literacy nonprofit Room to Read. From 2008 to 2012, she led the team which established Room to Read's fundraising presence in Australia, and in 2010, she was appointed their inaugural development director in Australasia. Since 2012, she's been based overseas and has worked on building international as well as local connections with writers and other people interested in helping to promote the work of Room to Read. The Gift of Reading was published to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Room to Read. Jenny, before we talk about your beautiful book, The Gifts of Reading, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about Room to Read. Could you just talk to us a little about that organisation, which I know was founded in 2000 by John Wood? Yeah, absolutely. So 2000 found John Wood, who was, he'd been a very high, high profile executive with Microsoft, and there he was suddenly in Nepal and was absolutely aghast at the state of education in Nepal, at the empty libraries, lack of books, and just generally a sort of devastated environment as where education was concerned. And John, if you ever meet him, you'll realise is a man who doesn't waste time. He's a mover and a shaker, and in no time at all, he'd actually decided to set up an organisation called Books for Nepal. But that metamorphosed very, very quickly into Room to Read because he came across another like-minded former corporate um, called Erin Ganju, who was working in Vietnam. So Vietnam became the second country where they wanted to do things in the educational sector. And that quickly sort of expanded out into seven countries in Asia and later three in Africa. So with um, Room to Read was founded on the belief that world change starts with educated children. And there were always two focuses. The first, as you said, was literacy. And the second was girls' education. Um, And really, the first decade of the organisation was about putting in infrastructure, you know, building schools, creating libraries, publishing and distributing books, and then on the other side of things, um, focusing on girls' education. And I won't talk very much about that because today I think we're, we're focused on literacy. 
And I would say that one of the things that really attracted me to this organisation in the first instance was their astonishing local language publishing programme. They started by getting English language publishers and Scholastic was a huge donor to give books that Room to Read then distributed into the schools and libraries in these programme countries, but realised that actually these children were desperately in need of stories in their own languages. And of course, you know, the likes of Random House and Hachette aren't publishing in Khmer and Swahili and Tamil. So Room to Read set up this publishing operation and they decided, I mean, in keeping with Room to Read's philosophy of using people on the ground to run their operations, they found local writers, they found local illustrators, they found local publishers, and they published these extraordinary children's picture books. Um, and I think now there are over 1,600 titles in print in more than 30 languages. And just the other day, when I sort of went back onto the Room to Read website to see what, you know, what was new, because there's always something new on the Room to Read website, um, I came across an amazing story about their work in, in minority indigenous languages. Um, and, you know, this, this thing is just going on and on. And another interesting thing I'll just say before I come back to you, Nicole, is, COVID gave this organisation, in a way, extraordinary opportunities because where the focus had always been on print books and getting books into the hands of children and their parents and their grandparents, because often the parents and grandparents were illiterate, now COVID forced Room to Read into an online publishing operation. So to supplement those print books, there is now this thing called the Literacy Cloud, which is, of course, available to everyone everywhere and lots of the books are now coming out in English, as well as in Lao, Khmer, Swahili, Tamil, all these other languages. Mm. So it's, you know, it's been an amazing story, the whole thing from start to now. How did you first hear about them, Jenny? You write that you, you first became aware of them in about 2005. I, yeah, I was at that time, that was the first time we'd lived in Hong Kong. I was here for about two and a half years um, as a result of my husband's job being here. And I wasn't hugely involved at that time because I was doing other things, but I was very much aware of this organisation and loved the fact that so many of the countries that it was working in, Laos, Nepal, India, South Africa, were countries where I had some kind of a personal connection. And of course, coming from a publishing background, as I said, I was really drawn to this idea of getting books to children creating libraries, getting children reading, and not just reading so that they can answer exam questions, reading so that they love reading for the rest of their lives. In 2008, you and your husband were coming up to your 25th wedding anniversary and you decided to fund one of the Room to Read schools in Laos. Could you tell us a little bit about that and your visit to say that school? I'd love to tell you a little bit about that. Yes, my husband had actually been working for Shell in Laos for about three years up to the time when we got um, got together in London and then got engaged and married. And um, when I first heard about Room to Read and the fact that at that time it was focusing on infrastructure and people were given opportunities to fund libraries or fund schools, immediately I went home and I said, you know, there's this opportunity and I think it would be amazing to do this for our wedding anniversary. And of course, Ivor, my husband, was, he embraced the idea immediately. And you know, it took a couple of years for all of this to happen. And in the end, um, 
what, how I became more involved, very much more involved, was that the founder, John Wood, knew that I was returning to Australia after six and a half years away in Asia, partly in Japan, partly in Hong Kong. And he said, look, you know, we've got another, this is very John Wood style, we've got another um, former Hong Kongite who's back in Sydney, and I want the two of you to get together and get room to read going in Sydney. So we agreed to do that. But I said to either my husband, I have got to go and see Room to Read and see what it's doing on the ground before, so that I know what I'm selling when I go back and set this thing up. And the journey we took to Laos was amazing. We we travelled to, I have I been there at that point? Yeah, I've been there on our honeymoon. Um, so this was now quite a few years later because we had uh, we had a Basi ceremony on our honeymoon in Laos. But we went back, we went to Luang Prabang, and I think morning two or morning three, we were collected by um, a Room to Read representative and somebody from the Department of Education. And we were piled into a rather old four-wheel drive and driven for nine hours into the the back of beyond in Zayabuli province where we saw this school. Um, and at that time, Room to Read schools were all built in the same way. They were a kind of long um, there were several classrooms and then there was the library and the welcome we had that day was phenomenal. You know, the, the children were there, obviously, the parents, the grandparents, the head of the village committee. We were travelling with our son and actually the wife of the head of the village committee asked me if he might like to have a Lao girl introduced to him. So, so we went home not just with happy memories of the school, but with, with a future wife for him. Anyway, it was it was a memorable time. And so, of course, when I arrived back in Sydney in February 2008, I was burning with passion to get this thing going. How did you do that? Tell me how you went about setting up that chapter here in Australia, which, of course, is still going strong. It is going strong. And yes, it went from Sydney and spread all over Australia. Um, how did we do that? Well, very quickly, I think within a matter of weeks, we had information meetings. I did know I had a list of people, I think since about... For about six months, I'd been collecting names of people who were interested in Room to Read in Australia. And so we got them all together. The other ex-Hong Kongite conveniently was working for Nomura Bank at the time. So we had facilities because obviously we didn't have a budget. We didn't have an office. We were all volunteers for two and a half years, I guess. Um, and there are still mostly volunteers. But we got people together and we found that we could communicate this passion and get people on board. And very early on, it was decided that we would have quite a high profile fundraising launch the following year, because one of the people who had been enormously successful in helping Room to Read attract donors was a wine writer called Jancis Robinson, one of the best known wine writers in the world. She's been the wine writer for Financial Times for many years. She's the editor of the Oxford Companion to Wine. I mean, she's got enormous credentials. And I would have to say she has been one of the most generous contributors to Room to Read over the years, not so much through, you know, writing checks, but just bringing, up, bringing on the wine world. And when I told my colleagues in Australia that, that Jancis Robinson was coming for our launch, a lot of people hadn't heard of her. But the minute I got on the phone to Vineyards, oh my goodness, you know, what can we give you? And I don't know if you ever went to a room. I know you knew somebody who was involved in that early team. Those, you know, the, the Room to Read wine galas are legendary, Nicole. I mean, they have them now in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Tokyo, in London, in New York, in Zurich, all over the world. And lots of money is raised in the room on that night. It was February 2009. If you think back, it was the GFC, mm. right? 
Nobody had heard of Room to Read, nobody had heard of John Wood, nobody, lots of people hadn't heard of Jancis Robinson, but somehow we got 300 people into the room and a lot of them put their hands up and committed to giving a lot of money. Um, and I would have to say at this point, uh, you know, some remarkable things happened very early on. I mean, I knew nothing about fundraising and nothing about setting up um, a branch of uh, a charity effectively in Australia. There was a huge amount to learn. I mean, lots of legal work. You'd have been fine. Um, but Mallisons came on board. Mallisons, right from the beginning, were extraordinary. Frank Zitzinger, who was chair of Mallisons, just basically said, I think they originally allocated as $10,000. I, I, we probably used that up in 10 minutes. Um, they just kept giving and giving. And even before we had that launch, Planet Wheeler Foundation came on board. And you probably know Planet Wheeler Foundation was set up by Tony Wheeler, Lonely Planet. So an amazing synergy there. I think I heard that they were giving us $200,000 the morning after our wine gala. And, and Jenny, you also enlisted the support of some Australian writers and as ambassadors and participants. Who are some of the Australian writers that got involved? Well, right from the beginning, Marcus Zuzak got involved. And Marcus at the time was just beginning this extraordinary tra trajectory of the book thief that, you know, made him an international bestseller all over the world. He came to our very first meeting and he, you know, he just lent his name, lent his support. And that was amazing. I didn't focus a lot on this particular initiative for a while because there was so much else to do. But other, I mean, Tristan Banks, I already mentioned, Alice Pung, um, who has written extensively about her parents' experiences and her father in particular in the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia. So there was, you know, a great synergy there. And actually, you know, quite a lot of kids and young adult writers who get out into schools and talk to students. Let's talk now about the book, The Gifts of Reading. Yep. You had the idea of creating this beautiful anthology after you read an essay written in 2016 by English writer Robert McFarlane called The Gifts of Reading. Could you talk to us a little bit about that essay and what it was about? Yeah, this is an extraordinary essay. This had actually been published as a single publication um, in London. And at that time, all the proceeds from the publication of this essay were, gi were given to an organisation called the Migrant Offshore Aid Organisation. Anyway, I, I bought this little book at the Tate Gallery, probably, I think it was 2017. I picked it up on, a, on an impulse. Um, I had heard of Robert McFarlane, had never read any of his work. Gifts of reading. I thought that's for me. I have to buy this and I have to read it immediately. And I did. And I absolutely loved it. Um, this story, like so many stories, begins with a gift. The gift, like so many gifts, was a book. I mean, what an amazing opening sentence. And so this essay goes on to describe his friendship with an extraordinarily well-read American teacher of English literature. He and Robert were in Beijing together in 2000. And I love the synchronicity of that, that they were getting to know each other in 2000, just as Room to Read was setting up. Anyway, it was a, a friendship that was nurtured through exchanges of ideas and books over a period of time. And a key book in that friendship was Patrick Lee Fermer's book, A Time of Gifts, which is about a journey. And Robert says this, the journey of a time of gifts is set going by the gift of a book. And it's a book that has in turn set going many journeys. And he, as well as being a don at Cambridge, 
um, a teacher, he's a walker and an explorer. And so this book really spoke to him. And so he received it as a gift from this great friend and he has given it again and again and again. And it's one of five books that he tends to give again and again. And he wrote a little bit about those five books. I love the I story think- of this one that it that was, um, it's the story of Patrick Lee Fermer's journey, isn't it? He set off in 1933 to walk across Europe from Holland to Constantinople, now, of course, Istanbul. So his idea was to travel across Europe from Christendom to Islam. And I thought it was really interesting. He didn't publish it until 1977, more than 40 years afterwards. And I love the way Robert McFarlane writes in this essay that encouraged him to stand up and stride out into adventure. And he writes a lot in his essay, doesn't he, about how this book really transformed him and inspired him in his own travels and how he carried it with him in his own travels. No, that's exactly right. Um, And has given it to all sorts of people over the years. And yeah, I mean, the other thing that he 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 ponders a lot in this little essay is the difference between the market economy and the gift economy. Um, he talks about the fact that the outcome of oh, hold on, where now? I wanted to say something else about this. Um, yes, the in the market economy, value accrues to the individual by means of hoarding or saving. In the gift economy, value accrues between individuals by means of giving and receiving. And yeah, he tells the story of giving his copy of A Time of Gifts to one young man he met who was actually rather lost in the Cairngorms and who later wrote to him and said how extraordinary it had been to read to read this book at that time and to receive it as a gift. Robert writes about how the book was transformative for him and he writes about the power of gifts to transform, to heal and to inspire. And I wondered if you had experienced this yourself. So Robert writes very movingly about the transformative power of books and how this book transformed him and inspired him to travel, to give it on to other people. And I wondered if in your own experience there had been any books that have transformed you in the way that Patrick Lee Fermor's did, Robert McFarlane. Do you know, Nicole, I wish I could answer and say yes. Um, And I've thought about this quite a lot. And I have to say no, but then I would have to tell you that this little book in a way transformed me because as soon as I read it, I knew that I wanted to try and make something of it. And having been a commissioning editor in mainstream publishing houses in the past, you know, I've always sort of carried on processing ideas for books. And so as I'd read this essay, you know, almost immediately I thought I would love to curate an anthology where different writers told us about the five books that they love to give. And that's the book that we're talking about today, of course. So that immediately after reading it, that was when you got that idea? Yeah. And what was the first thing you did? Was Was it to contact Robert McFarlane himself? Yes. It, well, no, not quite. Not quite. I actually bought, um, you know, I, I bought a number of copies of this little essay and I knew that Robert McFarlane, as I said, was well known, but I hadn't heard of this essay before. And I started giving it to people and seeing if they'd heard of it. And actually, no, nobody that I knew had heard of it. So I started thinking about what form an anthology would take. And the very first step for me was actually to get John Wood on board because I realised that Room to Read was coming up for its 20th anniversary. This was an organisation that had given the gifts of reading to millions and millions of children. What better than to publish the book and give the proceeds, as you said, to Room to Read. So I sent John Wood's birthday was coming up and I sent him this book and he came back saying, Jenny, this is amazing. And I said, well, that's good because I've got an idea. Let's meet. And we met. And, you know, he's a man 
man who doesn't waste time. He says, yes, go for it. So at that point, I contacted Robert McFarlane via his literary agent. I didn't know him. I could have gone straight to um, him at his Cambridge College, but I went to his literary agent. And after three weeks, I hadn't heard anything. And I thought, oh, maybe this isn't going to go anywhere. I wrote again. And within, I don't know, 12 hours, back came the response from Robert and his publisher saying, Jenny, this sounds like a wonderful idea. Please use the essay in exactly the way that you've described. So by this time, I actually had a bit of a list of people that I would like to contribute. There are 23 contributors. These are writers of all different nationalities who live in all different countries, including, of course, three Australian writers. Uh, How did you go about creating that wish list of contributors? Well, given that I wanted there to be this Room to Read Association, I wanted some writers who had connections with Room to Read program countries. So if you sort of think through the list, we've got Imtiaz Dhaka and Pico Ayer, who are both Indian. We have Sasonke Nzmang, who's South African. We have Michael Ondaatje, who's Sri Lankan. We have Madeleine Tian, who has written a novel set in Cambodia. Alice Pung, who also has Cambodian connections. So that was a first nucleus. And I should say at this point, lots of people said no to me, lots. <laughs> I was wondering, because we should make clear, shouldn't we, that they were all doing this work effectively pro bono. So they weren't paid for their contributions. They're all of the proceeds from the sale of the book were going straight into Room to Read. So you're asking people to do this as a gift, of course. As a gift, absolutely as a gift. And, you know, writing the essay is one thing, but of course then they have to correct proofs and then you ask them if they might be prepared to be involved in publicity, et cetera, et cetera. So they do end up, some of them, giving a a generous amount of time. And I have found this spirit of generosity coming at me again and again and again. So that was the first category. And then, as we said, Marcus Zusak had been involved before Jansen Robinson, who writes for the FT, had been involved with Room to Read for many years. And there was another FT writer, David Pilling, who'd written an amazing collection of articles um, in about 2009, 2010 in the Financial Times. I wanted him on board and I'll come back to him later, maybe. Um, And then I wanted people, I mean, I'm a terrible hoarder and clipper. So I had masses of articles by people who'd written about literacy and libraries and story and all of those things. So there were lots of people to go to. And yeah, slowly this came together. And it was, as you said, a great selection, young and old, new and well-regarded, people who were relatively new on the literary scene and people who'd been around for a long time, people who were living in different countries. And what was the brief that you gave them, Jenny? What did you ask them to do? (laughs) I gave them all exactly the same brief, which was to write an essay about the gifts of reading, um, recommending about five titles that they particularly like to give, and could they write about three to 5,000 words. And as you know, the response was astonishingly rich and diverse. And that's something we should mention. It's it's one of the very many beautiful features of this book that um, carefully collect as well as there being recommendations to other books in the body of most of these essays at the end of the book there's a fantastic just summary for each of the contributors the five books that they most like to give which is a that's just a beautiful um a beautiful asset jenny it's not easy to ask um but i unfortunately we can't talk about all 23 of the essays much as i'd like to i'd like you to single out a few of those that perhaps particularly resonated with you that you'd like to talk to us about Nicole, there were there were lots of there are lots of stories behind lots of these essays, and yes, I, I'll just mention a few of them. I'll mention Max Porter to begin with because um, I had never 
I had read one of Max's novels and I'd heard his podcast. He'd be, oh no, I'd heard him speak at Sydney Writers Festival and knew that he was astonishingly articulate and vibrant and he was committed to literacy. And he was the first one to send his essay in. He's an extraordinarily energetic and vibrant character. And his essay was the first to arrive and I sort of opened it with trepidation and I saw, oh my goodness, this is awfully short. <laughs> I thought, what's he done? And I started reading and I mean, it started, I have been a dedicated giver of books for as long as I have been able because it's beneficial to the cultural ecosystem, because books are extraordinarily good value, because part of being evangelical about literature and literacy should be putting your money where your mouth is. I take a book to meet a friend. I take a book to meet an enemy. My mind is made of books and so on. I mean, I just loved every word and the energy of this. And he wrote about one book. So not only has he written a short essay, he's written about one book. I'm thinking, did nobody read my brief? Um, but it didn't matter because it was so beautifully phrased. And then what was the book he wrote about, Jenny? He wrote about Wendell Berry's essay, um, which was obviously published in the same format as Robert McFarlane's original Gifts of Reading, and it's called Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Computer. And Wendell Berry, I don't think, is a name known to all Australians. He's an American writer and poet. He's an environmental activist. And actually, Jackie Morris also writes about Wendell Berry at one point. And you immediately, when you read Max's essay, you immediately want to read that book. And I love the way, sorry, I probably shouldn't have asked you because he says at one point in that essay, doesn't he? It it shouldn't really matter what the the name of the book is. This is just what it did and what it means to me. But then he does give us the name at the end and it absolutely makes you want to go out and buy it yourself straight away. Tell me about another one, Jenny, that you really enjoyed. Yes, well, I would have to mention Pico Iyer because um, I think you'll have read in my introduction that when I first approached Pico, he was about to come to the Hong Kong Literary Festival and I thought, this man has written extensively about Japan, a country I love, and he's Indian. Why haven't I written to him? Pico Iyer is a man who currently divides his life between America and Japan, but he was educated in England. He's an astonishingly sophisticated and urbane writer, mostly about travel, but particularly about Japan and he's published in many, many um, um, sort of well-regarded newspapers and periodicals all over the world, particularly in the US. And he's attracted millions of viewers to his TED Talks, which are about travel, about life, about time, about mindfulness. He's a philosophical man. Um, and he writes beautifully. Anyway, he was coming. He was coming to the Hong Kong Literary Festival, and I thought, I have to speak to this man. I have to ask him. And actually, I wrote to him in the end, and he came back. I mean, he always responds to me in sort of 10 minutes, and he came back and said, Jenny, I love this idea, but I'm about to do a seven-month book tour. I'm afraid I just cannot possibly fit this in. And half an hour went by, and he wrote again, and he said, I can't resist. I've started writing my essay. Tell us what he writes about, Jenny. He writes uh, He writes about all sorts of different books. And the very first book that he mentioned was a novel by Hermann Hesse that I'd read when I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I think Pico and I are about the same age. And he was referring to the rather dull grey paperback edition that he'd had. And I thought, that's strange. I think I remember that edition. And I immediately Googled the um, edition and found the artwork, which I thought was beautiful. And I wrote to him and I said, is this it? (laughs) Anyway, this great relationship was set up. Um, But he, unlike Max, he didn't write about five books either. He didn't write about one book. He wrote about 20 books. But in the end, he did 
reduce it down to five. And there were all sorts of books. I mean, he talks about Leonard Cohen. He talks about Thomas Merton, the great spiritual writer. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of different books in there, books about India, including Catherine Boo, Rohinton Mystery. But what I, I knew lots of the books that he mentioned, but the ones he didn't, the ones I didn't know, I immediately wanted to go out and get. I must say that's a sense that I got from reading this collection. Every one of these essays, the writer is so passionate about the books that you do immediately want to read them. I had the same experience. I loved the way Pico said that giving books is a presentation of one's secret self. He says that um, the books that he gives to someone are a perfect reflection of who I am beneath the surface. Yeah, I think that's right. And I love that phrase as well. Reading is the richest conversation I know. Jenny, are there any other um, contributions that you'd like to talk about? Yes, I'd love to talk, well, many actually, but I'll talk about David Pilling because I mentioned him earlier and he's a Financial Times journalist, so he mostly writes pieces and interviews, etc. But I wanted him to be in the book and I was absolutely sure he could write something. Anyway, the time was coming when we were approaching the deadline. I think it was February of 2020 and I told everybody it had to be in by the end of the month. And I was getting emails from David saying, oh, Jenny, oh, and he was sending them to John Wood as well. Jenny, I don't think I can do this. I don't think you're going to like what I've written you know and I was really worried and, and you know I think I think perhaps you should eliminate me now and I said no no David I would really like to read what you've written anyway this was cast your mind back to I guess it was late February last year I was in London um, we were just starting to think about Covid and David Pilling's essay arrives and I take it down, I'm staying somewhere and I go to have breakfast and I start reading it. And I, honestly, Nicole, I was holding my breath because he was writing pre-COVID and this wasn't supposed to be a COVID-related book. But the, uh, the first lines, if you are reading this, it means that you're alive. I'm happy to hear that. Are there many of you left? Are there many of us left? So he was writing in a, la a sort of desolate landscape. His wife had just died and he was left and he was choosing five books from his collection that he wanted to represent the man he was. And the essay is called The Man I Was. And I just, I was holding my breath as I read this because it just seems so extraordinarily prescient. Um, so can I mention one more? Jane Morris. Yes, I was hoping you would. That's a really interesting story. So let's start by giving just a, for readers that don't know Jan a little bit of background on, on her and well, the, the response you got when you asked for something from her. Jan Morris had been James Morris and was an extraordinarily highly regarded, reputable, wonderful writer, historian, journalist in England. Um, I mean, she died as Jan Morris last year, age 94. So I guess I think she was born in about 1924, 1925. So her early years were working for the Times. Um, and then later on, she went on and wrote books. Um, and I'm getting confused with my gender here. In about, I think it was about 1970, James Morris had a, a sex change operation and became Jan Morris. And that experience was encapsulated in one of his, her most famous books called Conundrum. Um, and, you know, at the time, a lot of people were talking about this, but then it, it got forgotten in a way because she, as Jan Morris, became a great, great travel writer. She's written a book about Sydney. She's written about Venice. She's written about Hong Kong. She's written about the East. She's in a huge body of work. I mean, enormously erudite. erudite. 
And now I knew she was living in her 90s with her civil partner, Elizabeth, so her wife of, from when she'd been James Morris. And Elizabeth, was her health was in decline and Jan was taking care of her. And I knew somebody who knew her and I asked her to tell her about the anthology. And the friend came back and said, Jenny, I don't think Jan's in a place that she can do anything like this at the moment. Cut to Hong Kong when I met Pico Ayer and he said to me, ah, oh, Jenny, you know, Jan Morris ought to be in this book. And I said, well, Pico, I have actually tried to approach her, but, you know, it didn't go anywhere. He said, well, you know what, I think you should write again. And I did have her email address. Um, and when she came back to me, I actually quote this in my introduction. She says, I'm so sorry not to have replied before now to your last month's letter. I've tried to telephone, but neither of your telephone numbers seems to make sense. One of them being a Hong Kong number, one of them a Sydney number. Um, once upon a time, she'd have been able to decipher those numbers, but obviously she wasn't. In any case, I'm so sorry, but I no longer have it in me to write an essay for you and Mr. McFarlane. I have one rather forlorn suggestion to make, though. My happiest experience of the writing life, one which permanently enriched me, was my participation purely as a writer in the first ascent of Everest in 1953. I did write a book about it, but my better short memoir of the reportage was only a talk for the Himalayan Trust. They printed it for themselves, but the copyright is mine and it's never been published. If it would amuse you to have it for your anthology, I would adapt it to be a by-the-way gift of writing. If not, forget it and forgive me. Anyway, this eventually did wend its way to where I was in London at the time. And it came with a note saying, I dread your response. Forgive my senility. I shall perfectly understand if you reject the piece. I mean, I find it extraordinary that somebody who has been so celebrated in her lifetime still wants somebody to get back and tell her that what she's written is wonderful. And the piece had never been published before, had it? It had never been printed before. She delivered it as a speech. And it's, it is an absolutely remarkable piece. Uh, as you say, it's not, a, as she says, it's not about the gift of reading so much as the gift of writing, but it's a very powerful, uh, it's a fantastic piece. Jenny, there's a couple of others that I thought I'd mention. I mean, it's impossible to pick because all of the pieces are so beautiful, but I love the piece by Sasanki Misimang, the South African-born Australian writer. Um, she writes about her, how her mother gave her and her sisters the gift of reading on Sundays by telling them all to just stay in bed and read their books so that she could have a bit of quiet time to herself. And I love the way she talks about reading as being a political act. And then she ends by saying, I don't give books away. I like to keep them for my children's children. I thought that was very beautiful. Another one that I found very moving was Dina Nayeri, excuse me if my pronunciation is wrong, who was born in Iran but arrived in the US at the age of 10. And she says that the best gift that the United States gave her was her first, and it was a library card, which gave her her first true taste of freedom. Now, I'm thrilled that you've mentioned both of those because they are very, very special essays. And I thought I would just tell you, in case you're not aware of it, Dina Nyeri's book, 
um, her memoir, An Ungrateful Refugee, came to my attention. I, I told, she was one of the last people to come on board in this anthology because I'd never heard of her. But I saw this book, An Ungrateful Refugee, in a tiny bookshop. And Robert McFarlane had written something extraordinary on the front cover. So I thought, mm, I have to have that. And I read it. And her story was that, you know, she left Iran when she was very young as a refugee, went to um, a, a refugee camp in Italy with her mother and her siblings. And eventually they were settled in Oklahoma. But as a really young girl, she decided that she would go to an Ivy League university. And she set her sights on Princeton because she knew they had a wonderful library. And not only has she gone to Princeton, I mean, she's all of 42 or 43. Not only has she gone to Princeton, she also has been to Harvard Business School and she studied for two years at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Um, <laughs> anyway, her, her essay is actually going to be featured on the Room to Read website and an interview with her as a celebration of International Literacy Day. So you, you, you'll hear more of her. Jenny, I'm wondering when you look at the collection as a whole, if there are any common themes that you see emerging? Well, interestingly, um, I had been going to mention Dina and Sisonke and Alice, all of them in a bracket of young women who'd used books and education to escape to a better world. So I already talked about Dina, Alice, as you know, I mentioned earlier, her parents were refugees in Australia. Alice was born in Australia um, just as they were arriving from a refugee camp in Thailand. And she was named Alice after Alice in Wonderland because her parents were so overjoyed to be in Australia. So she was well educated and she studied hard. And of course, now she's one of our very, you know, highly regarded young writers coming through. Sisonke, similar thing. I mean, her parents were educated, but she she was telling the story recently of how many of her aunties had told her not to study too hard in case she didn't end up getting married. Um, but she has become, you know, she's she is making waves in Australia. She's mm. just won a huge fellowship in WA. So that was one theme. And then another theme that um, you picked up on Pico Aya um, and about the, the intimacy of gift giving. And somebody else that I was going to mention in that same breath was William Boyd. Yes. Um, his essay had arrived just before Christmas. It was like this extraordinary Christmas gift. No, as I, as I read it, I was just thinking this is word. So many of them were word perfect, honestly. Um, but he's talking about giving gifts and saying it's something of a step into the unknown. Um, it's a particular kind of confidence and contract that's being made. It's saying in its discreet, diffident way that I think you're the same sort of person as I am. It can go wrong, of course, and the gifted book is tossed across the room or left unfinished. But when the connection is made, a strange bond is formed. And he writes specifically about the giving of fiction, doesn't he? About the giving of a novel and the yeah. particular intimacy of that. I, yeah. I loved that one as well. Yeah. Jenny, what was your aim for this anthology? What would you what would you like it to achieve or to to give? I think I would love it to stay in print, Nicole, because as you know, I mean, the book publishing industry is an industry where we see so much waste of books like this being put together so carefully. And, you know, a year later, the publisher decides, well, it's got another whole raft of new titles. And so, you know, this one isn't going to be 
um, something that's necessary anymore. It's had its moment in the sun and it's time to move on. And in the old days, when I was in publishing in London, you know, we had a word called backlist, which meant that a book would would stay in print. And of course, these days we do also have some imprints that are re-reviving books that have gone out of print. But I just want this one to stay around for a while. And I would also like it to give birth to a second volume, not necessarily the one you just suggested, but I've been thinking of doing a gift of reading for the next generation, mm. which would be a book where many, some of the same authors, but some different ones would write about the books that they think young people should read to guide them in this troubled world, the troubled mm. world that we're living in. Jenny, finally, how do people who are interested in Room to Read and its work find out more about it? Well, Room to Read has a wonderful website, um, www.roomtoread.org. Um, it's, you know, there are so many websites in the world that are not kept updated. Room to Read is constantly coming up with new stories of, of its work in different, in different ways, in different places. It also has a strong social media presence, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, it's all there. And if people are interested in becoming involved in a Room to Read chapter on the website, there's a list of the cities. I think there are about 30 cities around the world now where there are Room to Read chapters. Jenny, thank you so much for talking to me today about this extraordinary book. You talk about it having an enduring life. I certainly hope it does too. I think it's one of my favourite sections of the bookshop is always the section that has books about books. And this is an absolute classic in that genre and it deserves to have a very long life. So I wish you all the best with it and thank you so much for talking with me about it today. Nicole, thank you for this opportunity and you're helping to give it life. So I'm enormously grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberley.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.